All right, so I'm going to show you a slideshow really briefly because the image that you see of in your mind's eye of, of Ethiopians is one that is present in the country, but this is um, my field site, which is in the north of the country. This is um, a map that shows, to start off with, Ethiopia, and you'll see there's a white blob here in the northwest. My research site is on the tip to the north there, roughly. And this map shows that um, where I work is a food insecure area, but bear in mind that these maps are constructions and they have political implications for the country, <clears throat> so um, it's not necessarily really representative and that's one of the things I argue in this paper. Here are some of my nice friends and they are sitting with an offering of bread and popcorn to the Virgin Mary. Here are um, typical scenes of a butcher's. Here is a church, which is one of the churches I've been working in for over a decade now. There are about 40, 50 churches in the city I work in which is called Gondar. Uh, here are some worshippers. Um, here is a feast in the name of the Virgin Mary, as it happens. Everybody sits along benches, and in this context, this feast, the deacons of the church um, distribute beans in cupped hands to all of the people present. And on the plastic bin there, it says Mariam, meaning it's church property. So, that's just a view for you of where I work. Um, I don't know which one we want to look at for the next half an hour or so, but... <laughs> okay, what about that one? Okay. This paper is a result of a number of papers previously, um, and so I, I tailored it to this seminar, um, but um, it's, it's a piece of um, sustained work that I've already been working on. The paper addresses the interrelated conditions of a cultural memory of famine, massive price spikes and deprivation today, and the contemporaneous intensification of orthodox observance in Ethiopian society. At the very heart of an Amharic idiom, stomach, hod, of orthodox faith, are the spiritually charged capacities of food. It explores why today, fasting in particular, is associated with religious revivalism. In some, the embodiment of religious sentiment has a political dimension, Fasting is a discipline of the body, which by the means of denial engages both spiritual fulfilment and physical emptiness, bardo, to bring about an empowering spiritual transcendence of hunger and of widespread deprivation. So, uh, the significance of food to an impoverished society. Before living in an agrarian society in which about 80% of the population live off the land, I had never before had to prepare food from scratch, 
from raw grain to pulses to grind to dry to hull and so on, so as to create bread, or observe the necessity to arrange the slaughter of animals before enjoying a meat dish. Somehow their very means of existence were raw and palpable, and the wretched conditions of nearly all but the most well-off were a daily reality. This juxtaposition between the centrality of food and everyday ceremonial life also, considering the conditions of poverty, conveyed material realities and symbolic processes which I could not ignore. The themes developed in this paper result from my observations made in the field, which began to make some sense to me as I participated in the rounds of feasts and in the mundane preparation of meals. My life revolved around food, as never before. I observed and participated in feasts of various kinds in periods of fast and took up the daily routine of food preparation. I joined women for countless hours in their compounds and kitchens, water fed, at the markets, the buyer, and I pondered on the best choice depending on whether a fasting day or not. Fasts mean that all meat, eggs, and milk are disallowed. I ate with the community in church halls, Sembetibet, and funerary tents, Danro, Dunquan, observing activities surrounding food preparation and feasting, led me to explore the embodied practices of eating and enabled me to the opportunity to seek out contexts in which fragments of kitchen table wisdom could be gleaned. Food helps to enliven the ethnographic hermeneutic because it imparts the reality of lived experience of food and hunger, raw and palpable as it is. Hence, in this paper, I pepper my anthropological insights and ethnographic vignettes with offerings of details about food practices and culinary details that have not been included in extant accounts. This is not, though, primarily the objective of my treatment of food, for there are, few more, there are far more interesting phenomena in the mix than simply listing food customs and recipes. As with the cliché of basketry, descriptions of food can be boring and supposedly evidence the weakness of the position of women. In the field, I began by observing the practical work involved, and by working, I began to see this as social and cultural production, and to appreciate the huge investment involved in performing the alchemy of the raw and the cooked. Food is a fungible and generative category of thing. It is a commodity to be bought, then a gift to be redistributed and consumed. It can also be transformed into something beyond its commodification of life-giving nutritional properties. Food is, in a sense, a talisman, although this figurative classification would not be one made by my subjects, and though it does not sit well with the classical distinction made between magic and religion, these intrinsic properties cohere with the sacred potency, Hylenia, founded on the mysteries of the Eucharist, Kurban, and distilled in the power of holy water, Tzabon. As the different contexts described in this paper illustrate, food's transformative potential is harnessed and serves as a vehicle for the Ethiopian inalienable sacra, Tzabon, imbued in food, I will elucidate how the meaning of food to an informal society is elaborated culturally, and so will decode socially prescribed practices that are readily available, livable, and which constitute the social milieu. Christian formulations of food are the vehicle for positive primordial sentiments of sharing and belonging, and the practical and social work of feasting is so as to maintain solidarity in the face of the unseen threat of hunger. Food is a symbolic repository of anxiety and desire, a powerful thing that must be harnessed and protected by the efforts of the community that it possesses it. In this paper, I would essay that food not only touches everybody's lives as it circulates in the mainstream of society, but by virtue of it being physically ingested, is embodied practice. So, next section, poverty and famine. <clears throat> Ethiopia is one of the poorest countries in the world, and is the world's crucible for hunger, poverty and famine. Using the various socio-economic indicators, one can see that quite a sizable percentage of the population lives in abject poverty. 
In 2003, Theodore faced another famine, which debatably is now claimed to be over. Then, the government said that one in five of the population were at risk, according to Lauks and Raven Roberts, 2009. Given that it is 25 years since the Live Aid beginnings, a retrospective asks, why does famine persist? You can see Devereaux or Gill, for example. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> while there has been some important improvement, especially in the rural agricultural areas of the north, with early warning systems in place, in a way, improvement has been offset by a huge increase in urban hunger and destitution, which was not figured on the map at all. Though, though most of the population is rural, um, the towns are expanding. It's the most fastest growing urbanisation in the whole of the continent of Africa at the moment. <clears throat> it's extraordinary. The gap of inequity is wide, perhaps even widening, with a commodity economy in towns and subsistence farming in the countryside. Urban poverty has until recently been overlooked, and the newfound interest and concern is in part due to its rise in the past, past five years or so. Increasing costs means a decline in purchasing power, and this is not seasonal shortage, but it is a problem for many. So that urban life now feels to informants that it's getting increasingly more difficult compared to in past years. While famine is the extreme, there's a pervasive sense of lack and neediness all around. 40 to 50% of Ethiopians at any one time are considered to be malnourished by UNICEF. Harold Aspen, my colleague Norwegian, in his study, Faces of Poverty, Life in Gatawolo, which is this study here, um, is determined to put statistics aside in order to represent the life of four mainly Muslim households in northern Ethiopia. Um, in the literature on hunger in Ethiopia, one encounters quantitative data overly and less qualitative description that can counteract the depersonalizing, overwhelming body counts, if you will, of statistical data indicating how desperate life is for the poor in Ethiopia. Christians and Muslims in Ethiopia, especially in the region featured in my study, are able, and his, are able to intermarry to a remarkable degree. As Eloi Fike, my French colleague, has recently shown, Muslim-Christian relations are delineated by avoidance of food and the, by each of the respective religious convictions. While they may eat vegetarian dishes, Orthodox Christians and Muslims together um, flesh is soaked in faith, and meat slaughtered according to the other faith is a total anathema. We can reach beyond this boundary maintenance into what makes up the Orthodox faith community, and in a visceral sense, it is the consumption of meat as a resource that is, is imbued with life force that represents a culture-wide interfusion of matter and spirit. The practices of Orthodox observance surrounding food are quite intricate. For our purposes here, it is enough to remark upon the importance of the fasts as they underscore commercial, agrarian, and political economies. The images of people fasting, joining together to break bread, opting to fast, not to eat certain foods, and to be choosy, is all at odds with the standard imagery of the hunger in Ethiopia scored onto the faces and incised into the skeletal bodies of the needy. Most often, images in the media of people desperate for hunger, a child suckling on a wizened, dry breast, hollowed eyes and skull-like faces staring into the abyss. This is certainly an unholy reality. A couplet here translated reflects its experience from within the traumatised and famished community. May God mete out his justice upon you. Mr. Famine, look at what you are doing. The child is sucking at the breast of her dead mother. This is taken from an important collection of oral poetry specifically collated by Fakada Azeza in regards to famine and God in Ethiopia. 
In Unheard Voices, God is illustrated to be the source of explanation and for anger about family conditions experienced during the 1984-5 famine. This paper seeks to explain the experimental dimension of hunger and relate it to the nutritional realities of daily life that are inadequately drawn by nutritional data alone. This for religious communities is shaped and even defined by religious observances and food is more than nutrition. It is sustenance for the soul. By means also of the technologies of self and body, the appetite is suppressed and the demon of hunger tamed and the spectre of famine kept at bay by a system of religious regulation. Cravings for food become something to overcome in the name of faith and tastes and textures become imbued with morality that denies them adequation with nutritional value and food being so pervasive in religious symbolism, uh, sorry, and makes them ineligible, sorry, <coughs> I need to that, I'm a bit carried away, <coughs> cravings for food become something to overcome in the name of faith, <coughs> and tastes and textures become imbued with a morality that denies an adequation with nutritional value, and makes them inedible, depending on the day, by provenance, which is discerned by its spiritual essence, and food is so pervasive in this way in religious symbolism. Indeed, while the Eucharist bread is sanctified, it can be argued that Ethiopian food is a ritual cuisine, since it is categorised overall as clean and unclean. How does hunger affect religious symbolism? This, of course, is a question about how famine affects the human condition, an ethical dilemma of sorts. It is often said that life in Africa comes cheap. This shocking assumption is that the scarecrow man is too abject to be able to have any dignity or presence of mind left. One of the main sources of dignity is being able to share food, even meagre resources with others. During famine, the most antisocial and dehumanising process of hoarding may result. The household is in jeopardy, and the functioning of church is at risk in times of crisis. Um, another poem here. On that evil year, let not my mother come to visit me. Let not my father come. Let not my uncle come. One penny worth of beans is not enough for supper. Or another... The injera, which is the bread. The injera is baked, but you say to me, I swear there's nothing to eat, O son of my mother. The boiled grain is near to cracking the pot, but you say to me, O brother of mine, I swear there's nothing to eat. Now, when you are dead, what simpleton would weep for you? He'd rather say, like when squashing a louse, good for you. Sending children away for, for contractual labour and selling off property or going to the towns are desperate measures that unfold during complete famine. All are unwelcome, avoidance, social anarchy, replaces cooperation and reciprocity. A moral and spiritual economy is defiled by people drinking soil mixed with water. Food becomes inverted, for example. Here, take my clothes, roll them up and eat them. Unilate, O vulture, unilate, O carrying bird, plenty of carrying for your lunch, and so on. In this heart-wrenching collection of poetry, the remorselessness of famine and the physical and human need are presented as insidious to sociality, life and religious piety. So it is that the Holy of Holies, which is the central part of the Church, is never opened for the Eucharist, since the priest never goes to church. In fact, Ethiopian Highlanders, in one of the most famine-prone areas, are very aware of the concept of personal and social dignity, which is kebab which is maintained by fasting and by regular church attendance. One can attribute this sense of honour to the remnants of an aristocratic feudal system that was based on retinues and patronage, but with much of the wealth being directly controlled by the monasteries. This was disestablished during the communist era. This system, once dismantled, 
however, did not mean that the concept of kibbutz um, went to the, by the wayside. It has been retained along with the value placed upon piety and physical purity, which are Haim Nakawi and Netzana. This is also in the context of a religious revival that is gripping the country today and begin, began almost coincidentally with the fall of the Dirk, which was the um, communist regime, which was in 1991. Feasting in church halls has replaced the retinues of a bygone era as a focus for a sense, sense of communalism, commensalism, and community. While in Remapping Ethiopia, a collection on um, Ethiopia Today, um, edited by Wendy James, um, I argued that the church is the repository of, the of certainty and security, offering a monumental haven. I also suggest it is the seat of an alternative po polity and the modus operandi of pietism. To this must be added that the church has become an engine that allows mass participation and public assembly. It is also, as well now, owned by its adherents in a new way, for now the church relies on the faithful for donations and religious offerings instead of on tithes. So in a new setting, the church offers dignity and a sense of collective will. This orthodox identity is founded on consumption, whether in former times or today, so that now the aim of every church is to receive enough offerings to enable the parish council to organise the reconstruction of the buildings around modern lines. This sense of the collective well-being of the church and its community stretches to a general principle of reciprocity, Mouse. The main source of this tangibly is through foot feasting and the Eucharist. Intangible though it is, there is a spiritual spirit of sacra generated by the Eucharistic host that flows throughout the society along lines of shared meals and broken bread together. Getting closer to understand the life of Orthodox Christians, these aspects of life, poverty and insecurity, both economic and physical, confront us. Can, though, some sort of bioculturalism, from which behaviour acts as a thin veneer or a buffer um, against environmental stress, be attributed to fasting? There is a distinction to be made between rural and urban Ethiopians and their patterns of hunger. The first population is the main preoccupation of studies since the 1984 famine. There is still the most important year, um, that is the most important year, in the memory of many of the rural communities in northern Ethiopia. It can be taken to be the benchmark for the studies and programs of the early family warming, warming system and the masses of brain development literature to date. In this literature, the most intensely considered aspect has been the supply of food. However, for a population that overwhelmingly believes that God will provide, what are the implications, what are the implications of this? Today there is famine, but this is window dressed, and if not to be seen so cynically, then there still is the fact that it is taken into account that even in good years there is loss of life resulting from malnutrition and chronic hunger. On top of this, there is the general phenomenon of seasonal hunger in rural communities. The bulk of studies focus on rural poverty and furthermore on methodological measurements of poverty. Um, what, though, of the social production of hunger and of perceptions of food security? A biocultural understanding also can see that physicality of fasting is a mechanism by which people regulate the patterns of hunger. Also, as pertaining to the cultural encoding of the biological process of ingestion, this is of interest because the technology of the body is found ritualised in alimentary sacrifice and food as a presence is a felt presence and is actualised by Christian magication, which is chewing. Um, in my book, this search for the nexus of symbolical meaning and the reality of food also involves thinking through the Eucharist as a temporal sacrifice rooted in a particular historicity, in a collective consciousness that has undergone harrowing food shortages 
sometime famine in modern and archaic times. Historical materialism offers a genealogy of how the Eucharist has become a voluntaristic sacrifice and offering that is married to the political pietism of aesthetic acts, which is the falsest. This anthropological representation of a population with no daily hunger adds another dimension to the image of famished Ethiopia, one that contributes to an understanding that before people are utterly destitute and dispossessed, there is a shaking and constant struggle to control as well as renounce both self and environment. The topical subject of food and new focus in Ethiopian studies has broadened the scope of the inquiry from the study of agricultural production, food and security and survival strategies, now to encompass consumption practices and food ways. This study is a contribution to that discourse and takes into account many quantitative data concerned with the material quality of life. Such statistical data is the baseline from which to understand the people who are in poverty. This contribution, however, does not attempt to make a direct correlation between food waste and productivity in order to seek ways to lessen vulnerability to famine and food insecurity. It aims to give some insight into the visceral and painful literary experience of poverty by inquiring into what can be regarded as some experiential aspects of eating and hunger. Instead, based on participant observation methodology, this interpretation of food insecurity seeks to understand the spiritual and physical relationship that Orthodox Christian adherents have with their food, and that food is imbued with religious signification and valued as a source of spiritual as well as physical well-being. The monographs will seek to define anthropologically the meaning of plenty and hunger in the round, and this paper explores the practices of eating and drinking defined as they are by Orthodox spirituality and religious practice. To my knowledge, Ethiopian Orthodoxy requires an uncommon degree of observance to the fasts, and the Orthodox calendar distinguishes religiously more fasting periods and days than all of the other Oriental Orthodox churches. Ethiopia also bears the stigma of being a perennially famished nation in the context of a society in which there is widespread hunger, if not all that famine. What could the cultural logic of fasting be? In Gondar, my research site, the perpetual ecclesiastical calendar is marked by elaborate ceremonial, but each week is also marked by the frequent funerals, public displays of grief and mourning, luxur. So celebration, Baal, is underscored by the effects of privation, chigash. Such an environment of privation and suffering leads to the question of why people are so intently focused on religious celebration. This somewhat fallible response to the conditions of crushing poverty is complicated further by the extent to which people adhere to the fasts of the Orthodox calendar. Um, I have a comparison with um, the Arabs of the Sahara Desert, which I think I'll skip. How much time do I have left? So I talk about meat hunger, um, and that's also one cultural. Um, there's some evidence that if people don't eat meat, they hunger for meat. And what Ethiopian Christians do is they regulate when they eat meat. So it's only on non-fasting days, which are far, far less than 250 days a year of fasting days. So um, I, I argue here that um, although there are studies to show that lack of protein in the diet can actually affect physiognomy, um, that instead nutritional value Instead of looking at the nutritional value, we will look at some key symbolical aspects of food consumption, abstention, and production. People, I think, um, believe that their relationship to food is potentiality, and thus powerful and potent. 
Food can be both a source of vitality and can also be life-threatening. And this power to harm, to defile, to bless and heal is evaluated in relation to one's spirituality. While this is certainly contingent upon life narrative, the age of an individual, as well as the temporal order of the orthodox year, as we shall learn in Amhara region, the region I work in, fasting and feasting are embodied in performative practices and are even political vehicles for collective consciousness and frustrated political will. Therefore, the symbolic and socio-political health of parish, community, society and of nation is intimately connected with food consumption practices and the Orthodox Church maintains the food ideology necessary for the status quo. So, I attempt to address the possible benefits of feast and fast and furnish an explanation for an increase in the observance of fasting. Fasting is a shifting reference uh, which has also undergone a political transformation. In short, a quietist movement embedded in lived experience. I argue that the transcendence of ritual speaks of another dimension and that the embodiment of religious sentiment formulated in food ways has an underlying political dimension located in the wider society, from which is culturally encoded as which is culturally encoded as spiritual aspiration. I'm not. The anthropological delineation of the workings of Orthodox foodways reveals that political contestation, group identification, and cultural resistance are actuated in unspoken and deeply choreographed ways in formal and informal contexts of eating. The historical and political context of fasting. Though associated with dogmatic pious and orthodox meaning, historically fasting has been the shifting shift reference because piety accrues significance to religious practice within the historical moment. In the recent past, fasting was targeted as being anti-modern and anti-secular. Following, uh, sorry, formally curbing the practice through political repression in the centres is symptomatic of the totalitarian style of the communists. In the 1980s, on the crest of the wave of a secular-driven uh, notion of progress, the church was a target for criticism by, by the religious ideologues and also by Ethiopian intellectuals alike. Fasting has been explained by Ethiopian social reformists for decades as a form of pathological piety that undermines the strength of Christians. Fasting was a sign of dog for the atrophy of ancient culture and pre-modern Ethiopian society, and so something to be rejected. The abandonment of fasting heralded change, and according to the communists encouraged, who encouraged party members to flout the rules and so to eat meat ostentatiously during fasting periods, something that is deeply offensive to the sensibilities of the pious. Fasting during the communist period was regarded as a silent form of political resistance by them, more latent and embodied than other religious observances. And while there was a general realisation of the rules of fasting, some turned inwards towards their faith in this way. Many things were out of the hands of historical subjects during those turbulent years, which was during the, the years of the famine. Food is a domain in which the government intruded on a massive scale with a command economy, strategic food aid, and on a localised scale, at an individual level, with punitive food rationing and partisan allocation. Perhaps alienation from the Dirk's political will was best resolved by quietest religious observance. <coughs> At the time of the fall of the Dirk, fasting was then viewed as a means by which to pay penance for secularism and to heal national trauma spiritually. Pertinent here is the history of the liberalisation and then subsequent reversal of the Epicurean rule regarding the consumption of fish. After the fall of the Dirk and the religious coup that led to the ensconcing of the new patriarchs sympathetic to the then victors in the then transitional government of Ethiopia, which is now the regime. A swift edict in 1993 was determined by the new patriarch of Budapalos and the Synod, which reversed the interpretation of the canon, which may mean either including fish or except for fish. 
The political climate which left the church in limbo in a new landscape of freedom of religion was underscored by clarion call to herald the return to script orthodox dogma and hence the emphasis on orthodox observance. In the intervening years, the advent of relative freedom to practice religion has allowed for armed fasting. No longer does totalitarian state dictate what one can eat, providing one can eat at all. Formerly in Gondar in particular, not being Christian was, was to be marginal to the centre of power, and thus Christian in, uh, and Hara were the centre of ideology. Today, fasting is associated with religious revivalism, and that self-conscious piety, though speaking to another dimension, is grounded in an embodied form of political identity. Conservative though the practice may be, it has assumed a new importance. It's been refashioned by popular will as a vital vehicle for identity making that's widely in Ethiopia. Therefore, the embodiment of spiritual power generated by orthodox communalism and commensalism in a climate of political, ethnic, policy and freedom of religion is a quietest, even a nationalist movement, denominationalist even, and is channeled through an abstention from food. Touchingly, though not an out-and-out hunger strike, this is a way of reframing the experience of real lack of political marginalisation by voluntary avoidance of state mechanisms and the pervasive clientelism um, operating in Ethiopia's today. Even though Ethiopian um, ethnic affiliation is a contested concept, my observations concerning the maintenance and construction of the community have a wider relevance as it involves the reframing of the national official culture in sectarian terms. I argue along the lines herein that feasting and fasting enable the community to survive in the face of the threat of hunger, privations and political conflict. Mary Douglas writes in Purity and Danger that the body is a model which can stand for any bounded system. Especially so in this case, since the boundaries of Amhara ethnicity are defined not by religious affiliation, but by language and the changed regional boundaries which were imposed upon the provinces. Feasting <coughs> and fasting provides a focused community for political solidarity and voluntarism. Um, a revivalism um, that is now the bedrock of collective experience. It is perceived to be both ahistorical and yet also an ancient tradition. Intensifying the practice has the effect of emphasizing this recommitment to the majority which amounts to being the underpinnings of the morality of community. Sectarianism is outside the scope of this study. However, it's worthwhile mentioning that the degree of religious sectarianism is increasing as a result of the competition between local churches and mosques that dominate the landscape. For instance, the competition is involved in ostentatious observance of fasting periods is, is one example of this, and um, other divergent forms of extroverted religiosity. <coughs> Converts to other Christian convictions are occasionally still observant in their fasting, proving that this persuasion to fast is not only orthodox, but is inherently a physical embodiment of sociality. Fasting is identified with what makes one fully human, in the sense of belonging and also being adequate and seeking to be to perfect fitsum, both flesh and spirit. A convert's fasting reveals to the orthodox majority that they have not abandoned their soul and also continued to fast in order to be accepted, as well as tapping into sacred and political power. Um, so I'll just hop from that to um, the well-being of poverty. <coughs> so it's, what I'm saying is that it's, it's a national culture, basically, although it is religious. Um, we address two contemporary interrelated concerns of growing urban poverty and hunger and the contemporaneous phenomenon of the intensification of the observance of fasting with the Orthodox Christian community. Rather than prescribing change, I want to build upon the current paradigm of human security by attempting to explain the cultural logic of fasting. Though people's sense of well-being is partly based on their material poverty, it's also based on other people with capabilities. Hi. Um, 
I'm glad you came with us, sorry. Um, I'll just continue. I just started another section, well-being and poverty. I've just been arguing that um, feasting has increased in its um, occurrence in Ethiopia, with also a contemporaneous rise in urban hunger. Um, um, and um, I mentioned bioculturalism, and I argue that it's um, fasting is an embodied practice, hunger is, is an embodied state of being, and therefore nutritional indicators alone, even though they're so shocking in Ethiopia where 50% of the population are malnourished at any time, don't adequately represent how people live in Ethiopia as people who know daily hunger. Um, <clears throat> though people's sense of well-being is partly based on their material poverty, it is also based on other human capabilities. The World Bank Wellbeing and Poverty in Ethiopia study indicates health, nutrition and education indicators such as being well-nourished. However, what sense does this particular example make in relation to a population that voluntarily abstains from food? Neither the fact that the church provides a structure and spectacle, nor that the elaborate and highly prized religious practices which might mitigate some anxiety associated with economic deprivation are included in, as criteria for well-being. Along these lines, there are qualitative features omitted for Sitali. For instance, fasting, as for other religious practices, is associated with other worldly pursuits, and this transcendence embodied in the rigours of the fasts can offset the impact of material hardship in terms of subjective perceptions and lived experience. Christian faith, observable in the devotion of parishioners, the security that the church provides, and the celebratory capacity of religious festivals, is regulated by an annual cycle of feasts and fasts. Hence, fasting represents a collective group practice and also an intimate, domestic, and deeply personal commitment to ritualised identity maintenance. And this is offset by feasting. The intrinsic value of Orthodox spirituality should not be underestimated, and this value is located in the materiality of food and the bodily process of ingestion. Eating, ingesting, and sharing food are spiritually charged. More than this, this alternative perspective is one that appreciates the reverence given to food by those who know the real hunger. By contrast to the scrutiny that fasting underwent during the communist era, which I've just gone through the history of, feasting has received scant attention. In an urban setting where there is little employment opportunity, energy is expended on the preparation, distribution and consumption of food. Feasts require a good measure of cooperation between individuals who are enjoyed as co-religionists, as parish members, and also as friends and family members. Ceremonial feasting is so widespread and such an embedded social norm this by and large escapes socio-political analysis, yet in local context it is the focus of much social life. Feasts require acts of reciprocity in formal settings, and the round of feasts that entail so much organisation um, are an incalculable expenditure of time and resources, and this maintains the moral and political economy and generates a sense of community. There is just so much amity in the social life surrounding feasting contexts. The focus of communal eating, therefore, is an important salvo. Contrary to the rather hackneyed notion of the Amhara the people I work with, being above all else self-interested, generally the activities surrounding food and ceremonial contexts contradict this behaviour and ethos, and generally are not brought by divisive interests, since they are the antithesis of the ethos, or you know, um, divisive sentiments are the antithesis of the idea of breaking bread together, which is epitomised by the Eucharist. So, um, it's quite a lengthy paper actually. Um, I think that what I'll probably do is um, 
jump across some more um, empirical data in, um, in an analysis I do of statistical indicators that really do not represent the degree of insecurity in people's lives in their lived experience. So that the, the statistics show that you know 50% of the population, as I've said, are malnourished, yet many people think that they're doing all right because it's relative to the society that you live in. So you're comparing yourself, your own human security level with that of other people in the society. And I argue that fasting is a way to maintain control over one's access to food and scarce resources. And that's the cultural logic of fasting and ingestion in, in a very practical sense. Um, but it's also um, a fact that eating is an effective um, as well as spiritual activity. And I go on in the paper to describe culturally what, what eating means in terms of people's sense of morality. That greed is not the same as feasting. Um, that feasting is a religious activity in which you are allowed to gorge on meat. Whereas if you gorge on meat at any other time, um, unless it's maybe a wedding, um, this would not be considered to be healthy for your spiritual well-being. <coughs> um, it's a way of generating lust. Um, it's a way of, of, of showing that you're someone who's extremely politically uh, ambitious, um, and it's it's not considered to be to be a good thing because you can become very hot, and it generates tigab, which is a sense of overweening pride, um, which is very much part of the sense of who a person is in, in society, which is a very stratified society, but which has quite a lot of social mobility um, possible. So feasting is egalitarian and it's on the plane, um, you can say structurally, um, on, 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 on a horizontal, uh, also, excuse me, on the lateral plane, whereas um, consumption, offerings to church, all of those things are going on horizontal. Okay. So, um, so I look qualitatively at the phenomenon of fasting, which may be interpreted as an inversion of the threat of, of death uh, by starvation. This attribution works in an opposing logic to some ethnography, um, some classical ethnography in another group in Ethiopia, uh, in which um, people, when they're possessed by spirits, will cover themselves in a robe and start to um, stuff their faces um, with food, um, which is um, argued by William Shack um, in his classical ethnography um, that it's a way of dealing with anxiety surrounding having to share food and provide food for others. Um, and it's because in the Ethiopian case, um, in the orthodox case that is, um, instead of producing anxiety, fasting is beneficial because it allows one the means to avoid the anxiety brought about by a manageable deprivation. Regulating food intake um, and following the order system of meal patterning has the end result of being seen and being controlled. On a day to day basis, fasting is a vital bodily, bodily practice which numbs the pangs of hunger. As is well known by those who practice fasting, as I have, 
The way not to feel hunger is to refrain from eating, and by this method one can do without breakfast and lunch. The religious program of daily liturgies is tailored around fast, the fasting calendar. Priests who have a closer proximity, i.e. horizontally to the divine, orchestrate the liturgy according to the calendar of feasts and fasts. During periods of fasting, religious chanting begins in the middle of the night and is called by the hours, um, and the liturgy is delayed until after midday, which increases the length of the fast between the break, between um, breakfast, which is what we eat you know, on every other day, um, and, um, and fasting days, and just to re recap here, um, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church has more fasting days than any other Orthodox Church. There are over 250 days a year that people fast, and when you fast, you eat um, vegetarian. And on non-fasting days, if you can afford it, you eat. So I argue that um, the stomach um, is the most important conduit of spirituality, um, in fact, it's the seat of humanity um, and of being. It, it is um, known to be the seat of emotion, um, that when you are upset, your stomach and your intestines, you quarantine, they, they cut you up. Um, and it's for this reason that the Eucharist is so incredibly powerful that hardly anybody takes the Holy Communion. Only the priests and people who are extremely, considered extremely um, spiritually safe, children under seven, um, anybody who's past puberty really doesn't undertake um, even beginning to make their um, confession followed by, by the Eucharist because they're just too unclean. And um, really it's only that when you're approaching death that then if you're... Um, if you're prepared, you, you might start taking the, the, um, the, the Holy Communion uh, regularly. So, as you can see from what I've described here, um, food is, 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 people's relationship with food is extremely complex, and it's, and it's very, very structured and very, very regulated. And it's really so different from our perception of who the Ethiopians are, I think. Um, and the sacramental role that, that priests pay um, in the society um, is very, very important because they'll go from house to house blessing food at different forms of feasts. For example, there's one called Abba, which is given the name of the, the um, religious um, um, substance, if you will, that I've located in food and holy water. Um, following um, from the Anthropology of Christianity, um, edited by Fenella Canal. Um, there's a paper in that by uh, Cecilia Busby on substantialism in an Indian context, and I say that one can use this as a model also in the Ethiopian Orthodox case, where you ingest, but you walk around with something, with a spirit inside your body, and you can sort of by osmosis, if you like, through blessings and through reciprocal food feasting and through the um, regulation of the self through fasting, can carry this around inside your body. Your body is a sort of container of, 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 of spiritual substance. So finally, with my final section, if I may, um, I look at Holy Communion as a theory of sacramental substance. And I suggest um, that it's a very important um, aspect of it that, um, in fact, although it seems from the outside 
that it's it's a cloistered activity that happens inside the, 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 the central holy of holies of the churches. In fact, because of the substantialism, because something can be transmuted from, from thing to substance, to be ingested and embodied, in fact, um, though the ideology is this horizontal mode, in fact, there's an, there's an egalitarian mode, especially to, in contemporary Ethiopia, because I, as I was arguing, there's I've been a grassroots roots movement, and the church now belongs to the people, whereas it used to be the established church where most of the land was owned by the monasteries. Now it's disestablished, and it's completely um, supported by offerings from faithful. And so the very sort of ethos of the church has changed. And although there have always been these feasting sodalities, um, attached to churches on a Sunday afterwards, you'd go, you know, and you'd, have, you'd break bread with people afterwards, even though you wouldn't be able to take Holy Communion inside the church, there would be blessed bread, and there's a mimetic faculty here involved. And I argue against my colleague Stefan Ansal, my French colleague, that there is indeed a communion going on, that it may not be the Holy Communion, but there is indeed a communion of spirit and subject um, and substance um, going on. And these Sembete babes have been growing um, in importance because they um, function in, as a social welfare uh, unit in, in, in the parish. But there are many of them in every parish. <coughs> and in the urban area where I work, um, as I was saying, urbanization in Ethiopia is the fastest of any country in Africa today. It's extraordinary. And these Sembetsi babes are being are just cropping up like mushrooms, and um, they're politically very significant in terms of allowing for people to have freedom of association and allowing them to have um, some control over a structured uh, organisation, if you will. So, um, I think, let me just finish by saying... To close here, um, food is a symbolic repository for an admixture of anxiety and desire, a powerful material substance that can be harnessed and must be protected by the efforts of the community. The orthodox form of the transubstantiation of the Eucharist is feared for its great spiritual power. In the feminine domain, this is echoed in the alchemy of the raw and cooked. <coughs> Food's transformative potential is harnessed by and imbued in cooking. Men are discouraged from entering kitchens. Although the communal grain from the host is collected by nuns, that's for the Holy Communion host, the baking of the bread is attended to by priests in a bakery outhouse on the church in the church compound called Bethlehem. Exclusion of women from cooking the Eucharistic bread on an injera pan, a particularly lowly household chore because of the heat, suggests ritual avoidance of the great heat and spiritual power that can be harnessed by the raw and the cooked. Sacra Zabal, this substance I've been mentioning, though ostensibly, if not entirely inalienable, which is something I argue in the paper, is transmitted by food and protected and institutionalised by the vehicle of a culturally complex set of norms and orthodox rules associated with blessing, purity and bodily ingestion. <coughs>